Today's scripture is taken from Luke chapter 15, and Jesus has just told the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your, your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has, been, has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Would you join me as we pray? Living God, we often think that we come here to meet you, but you've been here waiting for us. 
as you have used Brine for decades, for many, many years, we pray that, that you'll be able to empower him through the Holy Spirit to be, to be able to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And we pray that lost sons and daughters will come home today. Mm-hmm. Pray all this in Christ's name. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Justin. Good morning, beloved church. My wife is very concerned about this beautiful bouquet of flowers uh, because of my bombastic preaching gestures. So I'll just move it over just a little bit. Uh, This is a text about family, isn't it? And uh, And I can speak on behalf of both of us. We are feeling very comfortable in the First Baptist family. In fact, I think we're getting... We're getting bit by the bug, and uh, week by week are being pulled into uh, the presence of God through the music and through the kind of leadership, the non-hype kind of leadership that you have here. We just feel so at home. Uh, any church that starts out a service with this is my father's world, it's like, um, uh, well, we're here. <laughs> so while we're here, we're really, really enjoying it. And another thing, talking about family, uh, we have a friend with us today. Her name is Brenda. hate to embarrass you, Brenda, but Brenda's father dedicated me as a baby. So Brenda and I grew up as children together in the little town of Hannah, Alberta. And then the lady sitting behind my wife, Myrna, um, Rose Schroeder, she really, for many years, has been like my surrogate mother. Many of you did not know that. I know so many of you know Rose because uh, her and her late husband attended here for so many years. But the very last holiday that we went on when my mother was alive, uh, I was 13. George and Rose were the family we traveled with. And then my mother quickly died after that. So I was 13. My brother was seven. And every time I see Rose, she pulls me in like my mother. And so I'm feeling that this morning, and I'm glad I can say that without weeping, Rose. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Well, this parable um, is so loved and so well known. It begins with the phrase, there was a man who had two sons. And we really don't need to hear much more than that. We know there will be drama in this story. We don't know that from psychology, though it helps us. We simply know that from looking through the lens of our own dysfunctional family. Uh, Whenever you have a father and two sons or a mother and two daughters, you've got drama. We know that also from the Bible. Uh, Our very first father uh, has two sons, Cain and Abel, and there is drama. And that's because one is the firstborn and the other is the secondborn, and it's often the differences between the siblings that cause such heartache in families. There's Jacob and Esau, and there's James and John, and there's Mary and Martha, and there's drama in every story because one is older, and that means that the other is younger. And the younger one doesn't necessarily always like being younger. Uh, There's something about that word First, it presupposes that someone is going to have to be second, second chair, second fiddle, second string, second place. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but there's something in all of our hearts that don't particularly like that. 
And even if dad or mom loves both boys or both girls equally, it doesn't matter because the firstborn will always rub it in the face of the other in very creative ways that dad loved me longer. And that is true. Uh, I, I have more history with my dad, who is now with the Lord, than my brother Brent. And so the older son will tend to struggle with a sense of entitlement, especially when the younger brother comes along, because then he will have to share uh, the affection of the parents with the little brat that comes along. <laughs> now, if, if the younger brother is the kind of younger brother that wants to be as different as humanly possible than the older brother, then you really have some tension. And I think if this story was written today, or if I were to rewrite the story of the prodigal son, the older brother would be buttoned down, his suit would be from Harry Rosen's, he would work in, what, in the, in the tall tower, he would be on a number of high-powered boards. He would make a very good salary, and he would listen to James Taylor in his spare time. <laughs> but the younger son has never walked into Harry Rosen's, hates that. He wears black leather. Uh, he would never wear a suit, would never work in an office tower, and he listens to the Rolling Stones. You see the picture. Yes. Yeah. But here's the deal with this story. Both boys desperately need their father, and neither of them can see it. And herein lies the theme of this famous parable. Both boys, with all of their distance, or all of their differences, are seeking to find their identity anywhere other than their relationship with their father. The younger son doubting his belovedness. Uh, seeks to find it in money and what money can buy. And he takes a third of his inheritance and blows it very quickly in Vegas. And the older son, doubting his belovedness, has created for himself a life very different than the younger. He is the responsible one. But with the responsibility, there's also a sense of judgment. And there's also a deep resentment somehow believing the lie that his father has ripped him off and has not given him what he has deserved. Why is it that it's the good boy and the good girl who feels like they're not getting their due? They deserve more. Well, the story doesn't begin with the older brother, but with the younger requesting his inheritance before his father is dead, and he blows the whole thing very quickly in Gentile territory, which would have been a very shameful thing for a Jew to do. And the humiliation that this would have been brought upon the father and the older brother is unthinkable. Uh, you know, we sometimes think that maybe when the, when the younger son went to dad and said, I'm, I'm done, dad, I want off the farm, give me my inheritance, the father, through his tears, simply wrote a check for the younger son and said, here you go. But that was impossible in the ancient world. Uh, nor did he have a bag of money and say, here's one-third of the estate. The father and the son would have taken a number of weeks and months to liquidate vast holdings and make that inheritance liquid. And they would have sold those pieces of property pennies on the dollar. 
And so everybody in the community would know about the liquidation sale. This would have been an extremely public thing because many of them would take the opportunity to buy up some of those pieces of land. Well, when the party was finally over in the distant country and the young prodigal's money was gone, he realized that the pigs owned by the Gentile pig farmer, and there's meant to be some comedic irony here, that the pigs had it off, had it much better off than he did. And so he's a smart boy. He developed a plan to save himself. He got himself into this mess, and he would have to get himself out. And this is always the way false religion works. There's always the thinking of salvation by works. What can I do to save myself? Well, he thought, I will return home. I'll have my best chance going home. Would it be humiliating for him to return home? Yes. And would he be willing to face the village gauntlet, the justice system, the cancel culture, the scorn of his older brother? Yes. If going home meant that he could simply learn a trade, get a job, and avoid starvation, he would be willing to eat humble pie. So he sets out for home. And before he does that, he crafts this very famous repentance speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. There it is. Make me like one of your hired men. This was his self-saving plan. But the idea of restored sonship or redemption or forgiveness is not even on his radar. It's not part of his worldview. He would be willing to simply work for hire. But what he didn't factor in was the depth of his father's compassion for him and herein is where we have the big surprise in our story. Now, the Muslims use this story to show Christians how salvation doesn't require a mediator or a savior. They say the son comes to his senses in the pig pen all by himself, and he comes home under his own steam, and the father sees him, and the father runs and welcomes him into the family, but there is no atonement. There is no blood sacrifice. There is no Jesus. Jesus is not necessary. God will just receive us as we are. Are they right? No, they are not. In fact, just the opposite is true. Think about the prodigal for a moment. He returns home and he expects to find his father in a certain frame of mind. He expects him to be aloof and cautious and cold and distant and angry. But because once the word gets out that he had spent his money in Gentile territory, he would be blacklisted by the entire community and subjected to what was called the Kazeza ceremony. Kenneth Bailey, who spent his life uh, ministering to people in the Middle East and understands Middle Eastern culture, writes this. Upon returning home, the young son would be obliged to sit for some time outside the gate of the family home before being allowed to even see his father. After sufficient time, he would be summoned. 
with the boy already rejected by the entire village, the father would be very angry and the boy would be obliged to apologize for everything as he pleaded for job training in the next village. They would then take a clay jar or pot and they would smash it in front of the returned prodigal. And by smashing the jar, they would be saying that any chance of a permanent relationship has been shattered forever. There is no hope for you. In the ancient Middle East, the whole community acted as one. The whole community, along with the father, had been humiliated, and now the whole community would demand and exercise judgment, the kazeza ceremony. So this really was cancel culture in the first century. But this is not what happens in the story. Seeing his father from a distance. Oh, yes, what an amazing painting. Um, the father comes running from the estate, not knowing anything about the son's heart condition. The father breaks with oriental tradition and runs to meet his son. The father runs. The Greek word is the same word as the word race. He races to meet his son. It's like his son is the finish line and he has to get there before anybody else does. This would have been very undignified for an ancient father to do. It would have been very humiliating for an elderly Jewish man. It would be safe to say that he hadn't run in years. There would be no need for him to run. He would throw off his outer garment and then he would pull up his undergarment around his loins in order to run, uh, showing his bare legs to the world. And the act of running would have appeared painfully shameful to such an elderly, usually distinguished father. Why does he do this? Why does the father run as fast as he can to his son? Is it simply because he misses his son so much and he can hardly wait to get his hands on him? I'm sure there is some truth to that. But I think there's more, and Tim Keller really brings this out in his book, The Prodigal God. The father knows the disgrace that's awaiting his son as he walks through the village. Yet, moved with compassion, the father takes upon himself the humiliation and disgrace that's due his son. The picture of a father leaving home and racing towards his wayward son is a picture of God incarnate running towards lost humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. He does not wait for the prodigal to get to him, but at great cost to himself, mercifully embraces his son. And the Greek implies that he repeatedly kissed him over and over and over. He could not stop kissing him. And in that moment, the son is raised from the dead. This act of compassionate humiliation, like the cross itself, was public. There are villagers and servants close by watching this unusual scene. We know this because the father turns to one of them and says, quick, make haste, go. Make haste and, and go because I want a chance to pronounce my verdict on 
my son before the village has a chance to pronounce their verdict on him. This is so beautiful. For my son has been fully restored to the family. So bring the robe and cover him. Bring the signet ring and identify him. Bring the sandals. Let him know that he truly belongs. And kill the fatted calf. There will be no Kazaza ceremony here tonight. If we break anything in front of my son, we will break open that bottle of champagne that we've been saving for a very long time. Do you see the cross in this story? The public humiliation of the innocent, the righteous suffering on behalf of the unrighteous, the judge bearing the shame of the offender, the robe of one man's righteousness imputed to the naked shoulders of another. We see God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So what effect does this extravagant act have on the younger son? Uh, you may have noticed that following the humiliating race towards him and the embrace and the kissing, that when the son finally comes up for air, he changes his repentance speech. Did you notice that? He dropped the line that says, I am happy to simply be a hired hand. And that's because in the midst of this kind of unconditional love and grace, simply being a servant for hire, it doesn't fit. The son knows that in this family, he will either be embraced as a son and reconciled to the family, or he will have to leave this family forever. Simply opting to be a servant who works for hire no longer makes sense in this type of family of grace. And so the son, in effect, receives his father's love of compassion and humility and forgiveness, knowing that it's pure, undeserved grace. And he's transformed there. We would say, in good evangelical language, he's converted He's not converted in the pig pen. When he's suffering in the pig pen, he's still figuring out a way to get himself saved. The only thing powerful enough to save a prodigal is to be in the loving arms of the father. But this is just half the story, isn't it? Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Now, all of you who are older sisters or older brothers, be prepared to get elbowed by the person sitting beside you. <laughs> I am the older. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Picture the scene. The Mediterranean sun is setting. It looks like a Vincent van Gogh painting casting long shadows uh, from the large frame of the older brother. He has been working very hard all day. And you, 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 want, you may want to ask, why is the older brother still out in the field working when the entire community is having a party? Well, he would tell you. It's because since the younger brother left, he's had to do the job of how many men? Two. So he's not happy. He's also hangry. He's thirsty. And as he gets closer to the large home at the center of the estate, he hears what sounds like the rhythm of a drum and a tambourine. He hears music. 
He, he looks through the window of the wall leading into the courtyard of the estate and he sees the entire community, the whole village dancing. And his father is leading the dance. This is the scene of Fiddler on the Roof at the wedding. This is it. And he smells beef, not goat. The house is pulsating with pleasure. It's really funny because when he left home that morning after breakfast, his father said nothing about, hey, by the way, tonight I'm throwing the mother of all parties. No, none of that. What could have possibly happened during the day to justify such a reckless expenditure of money? He doesn't go in. He immediately questions the justification for such levity. And so, verse 26, he called one of the servants or young boys and he asked him, what's going on? So the only responsible brother in the family needs to know what's driving the celebration and why he wasn't consulted. Verse 27, you don't know your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The last phrase could be translated because he has received him with peace. He's received him with shalom. Shalom, right? All the shattered pieces of this broken family have just come back together into a God-glorifying whole. That's why your dad is eating with your brother. He's forgiven him. In the ancient world, you would never eat with somebody where there was not first some form of reconciliation. The father has received your brother with wholeness. And so without sufficient time to even test the sinner's sincerity, the father and the rebel are reconciled. And how does this make the older brother feel? Well, we know. We know the story. We know it so well. His opinion about what should have been done with the younger brother has not been heard. His judgment has not been consulted. The father has just made a unilateral decision and the older brother is so mad and now it's his turn to completely humiliate the father. Yes, the younger brother did a really good job of that at the beginning of the story, but I think the wounds of the older brother will hurt a whole lot more. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Notice this, so his father went out and pleaded with him or entreated him to come in. Did you see that? This is now the second time in our story in one day where the father has left the home in pursuit of the sons. Do you see the gospel there? What does this tell us about the heart of Jesus who leaves the 99 in open pasture and runs after the one lost sheep? He's always going after the lost one regardless of the particular flavor of their sin. It might be white-collar conservative sin or it might be blue-collar progressive sin, but Jesus goes after both equally and says, you guys, you ladies, belong here with me. Let me grab hold of you and pull you into my embrace. But the older brother doesn't understand this kind of radical grace because it's not the world he lives in. He lives in the world of justice. Where's the justice, he's saying? Where's the necessary humiliation of my younger brother? 
Where's the payment for crimes committed? He needs to make reconciliation. He owes us some coin. Show me the money. He's saying, unless you show me the money, Dad, I'm not putting on a party hat. Mm -mm, Not me. You see, the reinstatement of the younger brother violated not only the entire village honor system, but it violated the honor system of the older brother. And for many of us, we just have to admit that this kind of radical grace flies directly in the face of our own sense of fairness. What's dad doing with my younger sister, my younger brother? Why such acceptance when she or he has treated me the way he has? But what the older brother can't see is that somebody did pay. Somebody always pays. But what the older brother couldn't see and doesn't want to see is that his father had already paid. He bore the prodigal's shame and humiliation. This is a picture of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself at great cost to himself. And so by not going into the party, the older brother deeply insults his dad. It's really ironic. As one broken relationship is coming together and being healed, another relationship is imploding in the same day. For the second time in one day, the father deals graciously with sin. The father reaches out now to the older brother, endures the shame, and initiates reconciliation with him. He doesn't demand it. He knows that love doesn't work that way. So he entreats him and pleads with him, please come. Everything I've ever had is yours. We are one. You are safe here. I could not love you any more than I love you right now. But notice, the father's love will not get to the heart of the older brother unless the older brother puts on a party hat and decides to in faith Love his younger brother. Whatever flows down has to flow out, or what flows down doesn't hit the heart. This is really the story of the prodigal son. But the older brother answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yeah, right. Yet you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who had squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And now in these well-known words, the older brother's heart is fully exposed. And my heart is fully exposed. The older brother is blind to his own condition. He too is a rebel, but he doesn't see it. He's on the farm, but he's just as lost as the younger brother. He's physically close to his dad, but in every other way, he is distant. He's like, it's like a married couple living in the same house, but with no intimacy. The older brother is a joyless lawkeeper. He is Javert in Les Miserables. He's an angry, hateful man, resentful of his brother and father. He appears hopelessly narcissistic. You wonder if there's any hope for for him. You've 
You've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends, yet you throw this kind of party for this reprobate of a son. In other words, how dare you love my brother the way you're loving him? If you remember, we were quite hard on the younger brother when he was satisfied to simply be a slave over a son, remember? My tone was, well, that's stupid. You want to be a slave and not a son? But now the older brother is doing exactly the same thing. He sees himself as a slave who has earned certain rewards for good behavior. He says, I've been slaving for you all these years, and you have not come through with your end of the bargain. And so we have another painting here of um, the father who's in the middle, the bearded one, the young uh, prodigal on the left, and the father is holding up a shepherd's crook, and this particular artist sees the lamb between them as the Christ figure, the lamb that was slaughtered. The older brother with the face reddened in anger is wearing the red over here. There's the little blue goat that he never got in his life. He's holding up a flag, and it's the flag where he's crying out, injustice, this is not fair, and I'm going to let everybody know. And he's also saying to his father, because you will not exact judgment on my brother, I will take my other hand, and notice what he's doing. It's coming up underneath the jaw, see it, of the young prodigal. I will exercise my own judgment against him. In this parable, Jesus is making a theological point. The younger son represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, and the older son represents the Pharisees who demand that Jesus give an account for why he's spending so much time with sinful people, eating with them, drinking with them, all of that. Where does this parable sit with you? Where does it touch you? Let me just share two brief closing thoughts. One, an observation of what I've seen in us church people over the last 40 or 50 years. And secondly, an observation what I've seen in my heart as an older brother. First, I think the one thing that holds the largest number of Christians back from really pressing in to know God is that their concept of God is preventing them from doing it. Like the older brother, we view our relationship with God more like a contract than a covenant. We believe that God honors good behavior with a good life, and in typical older brother style, we naturally believe that we have sufficiently lived a good life. Unlike the younger brother, we haven't deconstructed, oh, not us. No. We go to First Baptist at least once a month, We've stayed in church. We tithe. We sent our kids to Costa Rica. We serve. We've avoided most of the dirty sins. Oh, no. We're the good sibling. 
And as a result, though we'd never say it out loud, we believe that God owes us something. This attitude is only exposed when we experience the loss of something that we feel we deserve. So cancer attacks, or God forbid, a child dies, or a marriage dissolves, or a job is lost, or a nest egg diminishes, or early dementia sets in, and the attitude that emerges is, what have I done to deserve this? I can think of all kinds of people who deserve what I'm getting more than me. Where is your faithfulness to me in light of my faithfulness to you? Don't you know, Lord, I've slaved for you all these years and I get this? It's a common response, but it reveals that we view ourselves as servants whose good behavior now entitles us to certain blessings and rewards. And when the rewards don't come or they are removed, we take it out on God. We deconstruct. I think the current rage in deconstruction has very little to do with theological integrity and heresy. I think it has to do with the way in which we choose to live with the pain and the disappointments in our life. And when they come, if we don't truly know the heart of our Father for us, we will say, that's it. I've tried this Christian gig. I'm out of here. It's, it's the older brother thing. It's what's very easy for us to do. But this story doesn't just provide grace for the younger brother. It, it provides grace for us older brothers. There is the possibility of transformation for us. But here's the thing. Receiving this grace of the father, if you happen to be an older brother like me, will involve an accurate self-assessment. We will have to look at ourselves one day in the mirror and say, I am the older brother in this story, and I have a very hard time forgiving those who do not work as hard on their Christian life as me. And here's the second thing that I have seen in my own life. I am an older brother. And I mentioned to you that my mother died when I was 13 and my brother was 7. I had my burning bush experience with Jesus during the horror of my mother's death. And so because of older people that came alongside me and nurtured me, I sort of emerged as a young teenager unscathed by the horrible grief of what we had encountered. But not so my brother. He was seven. Not only did he have now a large mother wound, but his dad was on the road 24-7, Brent basically had to raise himself. And a number of years ago, it shames me to tell you this, that as I was contemplating uh, experiencing more of God's love and grace to me as an older brother, I realized that during my teen and young adult years, instead of coming alongside my younger brother, who had chosen to be quite a bit unlike his older brother in some ways. Different, different personalities, different styles. Instead of me nurturing him, I bullied him. I was the older brother in the story. 
And I felt God tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Brian, you need to, you need to make a trip to the city where your brother lives. And I did. And before I met him for dinner, I went to the, the place where we had grown up and where we lost our mom, and I went to all my old schools, and I cried and cried and cried. It was, it was very therapeutic for me. And then we had dinner, and I told him that I was so sorry for the way I had treated him. And he has forgiven me. But here's the message. God, through Jesus, has one hand towards the older brother, towards Brian. And he has the other hand towards the younger brother. And not only is he pulling them both into himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but he's pulling us together. The redemptive movement is never just from heaven to earth. It's heaven to earth so that I can extend it to you. And so that healing and redemption and reconciliation can come to all of our dysfunctional families. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. I'll ask the worship team to come as we close in prayer. Oh, Father, oh, Jesus, oh, Holy Spirit, how wonderful you are. What language can we use to thank you, our dearest friend? Thank you so much for this story. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for enduring our sin and shame. Thank you for rising from the dead, Lord Jesus. And thank you that you are here now, in this moment. All of us, Lord, relate to the story in different ways, but what we all have in common is that every one of us needs you, and so we invite you to touch us in those places in our hearts that need to be touched. And as we walk out of this place today, oh Lord, we pray that we will realize that everything that flows down will just by its very nature flow out to those who desperately need your reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.